Chapter 36, Volcan Cosiguinha, Nicaragua. Search for the Scarlet Macaw. The Busta Gausale on the border was leaving straight away and took just an hour. When I got off at the other end, I found myself surrounded by guys on little trolley bikes all offering to cycle me to the border. They were really pushy, even though I gave them my firmest, no gracias. One guy followed me for several hundred meters. As I neared the Honduran immigration, I was set upon by another group of pushy guys, this time hassling me to change money. This had been the most hassle of any crossing so far. I got my exit stamp and walked over the bridge into Nicaragua, country number six on my trip. The immigration here was more of a pain in the ass, and they wanted seven dollars, which I didn't have in change and ended up having to walk back and forwards to the bank. I got through, walked to the bus station, and started looking for a bus to Chinandega. I sat down and waited a while, and some little Nicaraguan boys off to shine my shoes for three Cordobas, the Nicaraguan currency, which is about 10p. I didn't want my trainers shine, but gave them half of my can of juice, which they gulped down thirstily. The bus ride was truly awful. The road wasn't even paved, and the rickety old bus with wonky seats bumped its way along for two very long hours. I couldn't read, so I spent my time looking out the window and studying Nikas to see if I could spot how they differed from Hondureños. They were certainly poorer, that much was clear. They seemed friendly enough, though, especially when I was walking around, lost in Chinandega, where almost everybody greeted me. It wasn't a tourist town. In fact, I was fairly confident I was the only one. I found a cheap hotel in the end, by walking round in circles, following the contrary directions of several locals. After checking in and having a shower, I went out with a simple task of finding where buses to Potosí left from. This was, however, far from simple. It took me a couple of hours, after which I was physically and emotionally drained. My hotel room was cheap and nasty, a gloomy pit with dark red walls and a huge sunken bed. In the morning I went a little early and found the bus only half full. I took a seat near the front. It didn't seem to matter where I sat, they all had equally little legroom. It set off and made its way slowly along the bumpy road. Again I found it impossible to read, write my diary or do anything else. I just sat and looked out the windows at the squalid towns we passed and all the goings-on around me. There was usually entertainment in some form. A woman selling drinking water in clear plastic pouches tried to throw it to a passenger through a window of a moving bus and failed miserably. The two-hour journey passed the three-hour mark and I started to despair. It wouldn't even be worth going if I had to come straight back again. The reason I was going to Volcan Cosiguinha on a day trip was because there was apparently no place to stay. As we were approaching the town, we passed a sign reading, Hostal Cosiguinha. I had actually wanted to buy a drink from one of the many vendors, but I told the guy that I wasn't thirsty, so I went without. It was a relief to get off the bus and start walking towards the volcano. The bus had taken over three and a half hours, almost twice as long as I thought. A bus went back at 3pm, which gave me just over three hours birding, not enough to get to the top of the volcano. I would have to be satisfied with walking around the lower slopes. Despite the late hour, there were still lots of good birds around, like the bright green orange-fronted parakeets and the funny little crested bob-white quails running along the ground. I also saw a nice cinnamon hummingbird with its orange belly and red curved bill. No sign of the locally endangered scarlet macaw, though. While I was sitting down and having a break finishing off the last of my water, a man came up the trail on horseback with an air rifle on his lap. I greeted him and tried to have a conversation, but it was hard to understand anything he was saying. He was making some excuse for carrying his gun, and said he wasn't hunting, although plainly he was, in a designated protected area. Macaw feathers fetch a high price, I expect, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to bag one, despite there only being a handful left. 
I wanted to do something, but all I could think was to write and tell somebody about it. On the way back down through the dry forest, I saw a movement in the thorny bushes and managed to see a red and white wren. I heard the bus honking its horn and started to run. I heard a hiss by my side and I saw a huge two to three meter snake recoiling in a threat posture. It didn't look venomous, but I was relieved when it chose not to strike and slithered away surprisingly fast. I planned to have a soft drink before getting on the bus, but it was ready to leave so I didn't have time. Once the bus had set off, we passed a few women selling drinks in plastic bags, but only on the other side of the bus. And by the time they got to my side of the bus, we started moving again. This happened twice. I felt like the world was conspiring against me having a drink. By the time we got back to Chinandega, I was almost dying of thirst and gobbled down five juicy oranges like a starving chimpanzee. I went back to my dark red room and sat on my huge, sunken double bed, lonely and hungry. I can't say that I really enjoyed my first two days in Nicaragua. It was nothing I could put my finger on, but neither the birds nor the people had made much of an impression on me. If I was to sum up the place in one word, it would probably be inconvenient. Buses on major routes went frequently enough, though, and it was only an hour and a half to Leon. On the bus, a guy asked me if the seat next to me was free. It was. He was very friendly and I was a bit suspicious, but it appeared that he just wanted to practice his English, although he spoke mainly Spanish to me. He'd worked illegally in the States for a year in poorly paid construction jobs and had something to say about the exploitation of Latin American workers there. He got caught in the end and deported. He'd been training as a lawyer, but was now working in a bank. It was my first decent chat with Anika. Arriving in the supposedly magical city of Leon, I was greeted with dirty market streets, the same as in Chinandega. I asked the way to the center, but before I got there, a guy came running up saying he would take me to a cheap hotel, but I told him I was already going to one. He pestered me so much that in a very stern voice I said, No, gracias, adios. To which he walked off and at a safe distance shouted, Estupido, the cheek. I checked into a cheap dorm at the backpacker's hostel. A guy running the place was from Belgium, he was a bit weird. I went out for a look around and got completely lost. I'd considered taking my GPS with me for this eventuality, but didn't think there was any need. I hadn't checked the street number, and after walking around in circles for half an hour, I seriously thought I might not find my way back. I did in the end, though. After that, I went to the bus station to check on buses to Salinas Grandes, where I wanted to go tomorrow. The bus station was as chaotic as any I've been to. There was no office or people that looked like they worked there, just bus drivers who looked permanently to be in a hurry. One guy told me that there was only one bus a day and it only left at 4pm. No good for me. I really despair at this place. Everything is either difficult or impossible. Later I found a map, however, which showed me that I might be able to take one of the many buses to Managua and get off halfway and hitch to the coast. The next day I boarded a bus to Managua and got off at the turning that I'd seen on the map last night. It wasn't difficult to hitch from here and I had a bumpy half-hour ride in the back of a construction truck. Salinas Grandes was a village near some salt lakes. There was a network of lakes and lagoons by the coast where I could see some waders and other coastal birds. From where the truck dropped me, I walked a road across salt pans with shallow blue pools and crusty white edges. The air was so dry you could almost taste the salt. The village itself was a string of poor houses and the surrounding land was as dry as hell. I felt like it was in a western movie and half expected some tumbleweed to blow across the picture. I walked around the lakes and saw small numbers of waders including the long-billed curlew mixed in with some wimbrels and some pelicans and terns on a beach nearby. 
The birds were nothing special, but I felt the weight lifted off my chest just to walk around in the fresh air and away from crowds of people and the dirt of the city. I stopped at a small shop with some kids sat outside and bought a very artificially coloured fizzy drink and sat down on a wall watching a fisherman repair his nets. My book said that there was an estuary nearby, so I walked a few kilometres north of the town along a dry, dusty road parallel to the coast. The wind was blowing inland from the sea, and pelicans were flying along the breaking waves in groups, making it look like they were surfing. The estuary and some mangroves were quite pretty, but after walking around the river mouth, I decided to call it a day and start the long walk back. No cars had passed at all, and I walked about five kilometres in the scorching midday heat, burning my face and neck before a bus came along. When I got back to Leon, I found that the long-billed curly wasn't even on my list for Nicaragua. Checking later on, I found that it was the first sighting for the country. It was my first time to get a first sighting, and I was really happy. I had a wonderfully refreshing cold shower and washed my clothes at the same time, before lying down in one of the hammocks for a while. <laughs>